Thank you guys. Good morning, Berean family. Once again, I am thankful for our worship team. We have Pastor Isaiah is out again this week. He'll be back next week, I do believe. Uh, and it's just, it's great that you guys do such a great job with Isaiah gone. So thank you very much for all that you do. Well, again, good morning, everybody. I'm glad to see you here. And for those who are joining us online, thank you for tuning in. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a pleasure to have you even though I don't see you. I'm sure you, none of you are in your pajamas. You guys are all dressed up. You, you can sit down too, by the way. Um, it is good to be able to gather together and, 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 uh, and have some fun, but also to worship our Lord and Savior and uh, through, through singing, through studying of the scriptures, and, uh, and it, it's a joy to be here with you today. You know, uh, I, I, you may or may not know this, but I was a football player growing up. And I uh, went to a high school that our football team was very mediocre, I guess you could say. Uh, you win some, you lose some. Uh, it wasn't the best team in the area. But we had a very good football team in the area, a private school called St. Mary's, Orchard Lake St. Mary's. Uh, St. Mary's is one of those schools that is uh, kind of a perennial in the national rankings for decades, right? They're, they're one of those schools that are always really good. They turn out really good football players. In fact, I played with two guys that when I went to St. Mary's my junior year in high school, uh, one went, to, went on to the NFL for like 12 or 14 years, but two of the guys won a national championship with University of Michigan, all right? <laughs> hey, this is the house, we're, we're here to celebrate the Lord, guys. I thought I'd, I'd win the group with this little story about my football experience, but apparently not. Well, anyways, Orchard Lake St. Mary's, uh, the schools also had a seminary attached. Um, a, a Catholic school had a seminary attached, and, and many of the people who came to go to this seminary were, 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 were guys who were going to be priests, and uh, they, a lot of them came from Poland. Uh, as, a, as a junior in high school, had, having grown up in church, uh, all of a sudden going to a Catholic high school, I had to learn some things very quickly. Uh, I remember when we first started going to school, we find out there's like, I think, three days a week you have to go to Mass. Now, if you haven't been to a Catholic Mass, they look a little bit different than our gatherings do, right? How many of you have been to a Catholic Mass? Probably a lot of you, right? Yeah, quite a few of you. You know, there were things that nobody told me was going to happen, like the guys walking out with incense. I'm like, why is that dude on fire? Like, I totally, I, I had no idea what was happening. Uh, nobody told me about those little kneeler things that you have to pull out, and then you, you, everybody's getting on their knees all of a sudden. I'm looking around going, what is happening? Uh, nobody told me that people talk back to the priest. You know, this liturgy thing, you know, the priest would say this, this, this sentence, and then everybody would speak back to him, and I'm like, I have no idea what's happening. And as hard of all that was, trying to figure it out, occasionally, actually on a, on a pretty regular occurrence, somebody would get up and give the homily or the sermon, if you would, and, and they would do it in Polish. Because again, seminary, a lot of guys from Poland coming, they would do the sermons in, in Polish. Man, you think I'm boring. I want you to go, if I started doing this in a different language, I'd be really boring, right? And it was, it was maddening even as a kid because I'm like, I'm getting nothing out of this. What is the purpose of this guy getting up and speaking in a completely different language and nobody has any idea what he is saying? It was pointless. 
Well, we're going to deal a little bit with that. Paul is kind of correcting the church in Corinth with some, with some issues that relate to that story in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So if you go ahead and start turning your Bibles there, some of you still have your phone out for when Pastor Phil told you to bring it out. And it's time to get off of Facebook, open up the uh, Bible app, and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As you turn, would you join me in a word of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you for being able to join together both here physically and those who are joining us online. God, again, we're just so excited to when uh, the day comes where we can all feel safe to gather again and uh, be, a, be a body together again here in person. Uh, but until that day comes, we're thankful for the technology to be able to join together uh, even remotely. God, as we open up your word, may your Holy Spirit just guide and direct every word that I say. Guide and direct our understanding of your scripture, Lord, and may it help us to take, all of us to take a step closer to you as a result. God, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'm going to read the first five verses, if you would join me, please. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, I got to tell you, uh, in all of my years in church, it's very rare. I can't really actually remember anybody that I've heard preach on this text in 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, in fact, I, I, I remember lots of times people kind of casually skipping past some of these things. Why? Because there's a contentious, potentially a contentious issue uh, within the church today on 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, I don't feel like we, need, we, we should go beyond that, though, without having a conversation uh, about what Paul is saying here. But in doing so, there is an elephant in the room. Um, I was hoping the elephant would be up there before my picture when I turned in play. Anyways, there's an elephant in the room. We have to discuss it, right? There is some contention around or potential contention around within the church today, this issue of tongues or speaking in tongues. Uh, there's issues about uh, what, what, what it actually is. Was it uh, an angelic language, or is it an angelic language that's unknown to humanity, or is it a known language that people would just kind of have utterance and be able to speak in a different language without any kind of training and a spiritual gift in that manner? Uh, whatever it was, was it, was it something designed for the building of the early church that would, at one day, at maybe at the culmination of Scripture, the canonization can, um, um, the canonizing of the scripture, would, would that be the day then uh, that, that tongues, like other sign gifts, would cease? There, there are all of these issues. There are all of these uh, uh, um, uh, beliefs surrounding them. And, and because of that, a lot of times people kind of want to tiptoe around the subject. I think it's unnecessary to tiptoe around this subject. I think we can have a conversation and look deeper into it. And that's what we're going to do to kind of begin our uh, sermon or a conversation today. So we're going to deal with the elephant in the room. What are tongues? Do they exist today? And should we incorporate them into our worship? Uh, I want to give you three primary viewpoints that exist within the Christian church. 
Uh, and so in saying that, I want you to hear that again. There are three primary uh, views that, that exist within the church today. That means there are brothers and sisters in Christ who stand in a different place than others and have a different understanding of Scripture and interpretation of Scripture here. Okay, so that's important kind of note to make. Uh, um, within Christian scholarship, again, three primary viewpoints. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to give you my opinion on the matter as well after I give you these viewpoints. I don't want to cower away from that. Uh, so three views on tongues. You excited? Somebody's excited. I'm glad to hear. So first of all, uh, first view on tongues. Tongues are an angelic or mystical language. Uh, uh, there are other views, by the way, but I'm just going to kind of go with the three, probably most pri the, the three primary ones. There are other views here, but we're going to stick to the three for time's sake. Uh, three, uh, tongues are an angelic or mystical language. Thomas Schreiner says this, the nature of the gift of tongues is debated as well. Uh, most scholars, he says, think that the gift in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 differs from what we find in Acts, and many think that ecstatic utterances are in view. Um, there's a couple things being said here that I want to, to, to note. First of all, he says most scholars think. I don't know that I t necessarily agree with that. Uh, I think it really depends on which scholars you're reading. Uh, but there are scholars kind of all over the map on this, so it's kind of hard to say where most land. Um, but most scholars talking about 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, the tongues that we're referring to today. And when he says uh, being something different than the book of Acts, what he's referring to in Acts is what happened at Pentecost, where, where people were able to speak in foreign languages and people were able to hear them in their own native language, even in their own kind of dialect or accent, if you would. Uh, so some people would say what we have in view here in, in 1 Corinthians is a different thing that happened in Acts. Others would disagree and say, no, this is just a, a reoccurrence or, or a continuation of what happened at Pentecost uh, here in the church of Corinth. Um, also, so this ecstatic utterances, something um, with, with just syllables kind of placed together as opposed to an angelic language. We're focusing again on kind of the angelic language uh, um, view of this, or the prayer language, if you would, um, for, for sake of argument for today. So again, first uh, view here, first primary view, tongues are an angelic or mystical language. Second one is this, tongues are a known language. Uh, some scholars would argue that when we're referring to tongues here in the New Testament, whether it be in 1 Corinthians or Acts, uh, that this is, this is referring to a known uh, language that is spoken somewhere on earth, that somebody without any kind of study uh, all of a sudden has the ability to speak or to understand. Uh, it may be helpful to know that the, the reason people have this view uh, is this Greek word being translated as tongue here or tongues in 1 Corinthians is this word glosa, which literally means language or languages. In fact, usually it's translated as language or languages. So you would understand why some scholars, as they came through and they studied the Greek word of this uh, of tongues or tongues, that they might say, no, this is a known language, uh, glosa, it's a known language. In fact, Thomas Schreiner continues uh, um, here, he says, tongues must be in some discernible code or language, even if the language is not known to humans. Since ecstatic speech cannot be interpreted or translated in as much as it consists of meaningless babbling and there's no discernible code, the word glosa uh, points to some kind of language. Different kinds of tongues, then, points to a variety of languages. The gift of interpretation is not difficult to understand. Someone who has the gift is able to translate the unintelligible language so that others are able to understand what is being said 
by the one speaking in tongues. Again, uh, Schreiner here is making a differentiation between an angelic language and kind of ecstatic babbling. Um, uh, but I want to continue. John Calvin, name you guys probably are aware of or familiar with, says this. He says, there was a difference between the knowledge of tongues and the interpretation of them. For those who were endowed with the former were in many cases not acquainted with the language of the nation with which they had to deal. The interpreters rendered foreign tongues into the native language. These endowments they did not, uh, these endowments they did not at the time acquire by labor or study, but were in possession of them by a wonderful revelation of the Spirit. So I'm going to stop right here again. We have kind of two camps already, right? We have in one camp where they say this is not an earthly language. This is an angelic or a prayer language. In this camp over here, you say, nope, this is some sort of earthly language uh, that somebody was just given by revelation as opposed to study or labor. What I think we could agree on from one camp to the next is that it is a miraculous thing that the Lord had given to a group of people. So I think we can start off with some disagreement, but also kind of draw or uh, have a bridge between the two, if you would. So then the third thing, the third view that's a primary view whenever you're talking about tongues is whether or not tongues was just for the early church, just during uh, the time where, where, where shortly after, you know, God pours out his spirit upon the church and, and the forming of the church begins. So just as this kind of a history thing. So this third point has to do with tongues are descriptive, not prescriptive. In fact, they have ceased. It's something, again, that was only for the forming of the church or for the early church. One moment, please. You guys can talk amongst yourselves when I stop the drink. You know, that's cool. All right. And I'm trying to move quick because there's actually a lot of study here, and there's a lot to uh, have a conversation. And and having a 30, 35-minute sermon, you really, it's difficult to do justice to even a couple of the primary views. Understand there are people who spend their, dedicate their life to topics like this to really try to understand. And with that in mind, understand that there are people who land in different camps even though they are both sincere and love the Lord and start with Scripture. So again, I want to make that a clear caveat that not everybody lines up and agrees on this issue. Uh, And we'll deal with that here in a moment. So some people, again, John MacArthur, probably the most notable cessationist in our day. Cessationist meaning uh, he believes that sign gifts, uh, including tongues, were something for the forming of the church and no longer exist today. He says this, he says, it is necessarily only it's necessary only to mention here that these are temporary sign gifts that are not genuinely active in the church today. Their ministry in the New Testament church was like the other sign gifts to validate the message and power of the gospel. Uh, so this is one kind of primary view that's that's prevalent within the church today, particularly a lot of conservative or Baptist church. Many Baptists uh, are cessationist, meaning. Again, that they believe that this, the sign gifts were for a period of time only and have ceased to exist uh, throughout the history of the church. Uh, so those are kind of the three big views. Again, angelic language, known language, and maybe the, these things were only for the early church and no longer exist, right? So then the question is, okay, Pastor Dan, you have the mic. What do you believe? And uh, so I want to share with you what I believe with a couple of caveats also. So first of all, where, where I come from in my view, I want to start with Scripture. What does, what does the Scripture say? I want to start with a study of Scripture. Any kind of doctrinal issue, we should always start with the Word of God, right? 
So we start with the Word of God, but there are issues where you say, you know what, it doesn't explicitly say exactly what I'm trying to figure out here. So I'm trying to compare Scripture to other Scripture, and that's kind of the next thing. All right, I see what Scripture says, and I'm going to compare it to other Scripture and help form a view. But sometimes there are things where it's like, you know what, I have to admit I only see dimly right now. I don't have extreme clarity, right? Have you ever studied the Bible and came to a a, a spot where you're like, I don't really completely understand this? So if you haven't, you're not really studying your Bible, (laughs) right? It it, it happens. So then I kind of turn to commentators that I trust and people who have written about it and studied about it and see what they have to say. And then I also kind of include, especially in this topic, church history. What what does church history have to say about this issue? What has happened in the last 2,000 years surrounding something like tongues or sign gifts, if you would? And And then I even draw on my own personal experiences. The last of those... The, the, is the most dangerous, right? So whenever I, I use my own personal experiences to, detrime, to try to determine what Scripture is saying, I am in danger of misunderstanding Scripture. All right, so that's a, that's a big caveat. So when I get to something like this and I form an opinion based on those things, I have a doctrine that I hold pretty open-handedly. And what I mean by that is uh, this is an area where I might be wrong in one way or another. So I hold this doctrine, I do believe what I believe that I'm about to share, but I hold it open-handedly because I know there are people who I I personally know who love the Lord, who fear the Lord, but land somewhere else other than where I'm at, okay? Is that good enough caveat before I continue? So where do I land? My my belief is more like the second argument, that these were known languages, that the, the Spirit of God gave revelation to people to speak at the right time to edify the church. All right, I don't think that these were a mystical or angelic language, or a prayer language, if you would, but it was a known language. Um, uh, sorry here, I missed my spot completely. Yeah, I, I, I think that, um, so that's what my view is, that, that this was a known language. What about, have they ceased? Have these sign gifts ceased? Well, I'm going to give you a new word. Uh, this is out of like Dan Krause's theology book that doesn't exist, but I'm going to give you a new word if you want to write it down. I am not a cessationist. I am what I would call a never existedist. It's kind of a long, it's a compound word, but you can write it out. Just sound it out. Never existedist. And what do I mean by that? All right. I want to be careful to make some differentiations here because I know there's in a room of this size, there are folks who believe different things about, specifically about tongues and, 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 and the things that surround speaking in tongues. What I'm not talking about is what happens in some churches where some people have a different view than me and believe that speaking in tongues is an angelic language and it's for today. I'm not talking about the majority of, uh, let's say, your, um, um, I don't know, your Church of God folks, if you would, or, or whatever denomination may, may speak in tongues, your, your, your Pentecostal. I'm going to talk about kind of the hype, what I'm going to call hyper-charismatic churches. Uh, hyper-charismatic churches where everything is expressive, where people kind of stand up at any given time and speak out speaking in tongues. Uh, 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 churches where, uh, think of a guy like Benny Hinn who might walk into a room and people just kind of fall out, right? Um, or or uh, a Bethel church, if you're familiar with it. Uh, Jen Johnson, somebody, a prominent figure at Bethel church, I, I, I personally heard say um, uh, that, that God is like a genie to her. So she likened Father God like a genie who she could just kind of get what she wanted from whenever she wanted. So I'm, I'm talking about kind of the hyper-charismatic church when I say it never existedist. Why do I say it never existedist? Because what happens there 
we don't find anywhere else in church history or in Scripture. You know, when somebody has the gift of, of, of barking like a dog, let's say, or somebody has a gift of standing up and just dancing kind of erratically, or somebody has a gift of this, this they, they would call like this spiritual laughter where they're just laughing uncontrollably. Those kind of things I don't see in the history of the church, and I don't see in Scripture. These are things that are foreign concepts to both church history, to Scripture, and again, into my own experience. So again, I want to make a differentiation between some people who believe speaking in tongues is an angelic uh, prayer language that they participate in. I want to make a distinction between that group of people and a hyper-charismatic church where all of these things are kind of expressing themselves in these huge ways. So um, again, I wouldn't call myself a cessationist, though. I believe that the Lord in his providence can bestow upon people uh, whatever gifts he seems fit. I think he, it needs to, to mesh with scripture, but he's the Lord, and I'm not going to question him on how he produces gifts. Comes to things like ex extrapolate out a little bit. What about things like a spiritual healing? You might say, Pastor, what about healings? Do you believe that healings still happen? Well, yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I've had experience where I've prayed for somebody and I've seen something that I can't explain other, other than the hand of God on the situation. Uh, there was one specific case uh, of this young boy. He was, uh, I think, five years old at the time. He fell out of a second floor window and landed basically on his head. Uh, I got a call at the time I was a children's pastor and said, hey, the church, uh, a family in the church knew this family, but they weren't attenders, and they asked if I'd go visit this, this boy. So I went and visited him. This is like 2009, 2010, and um, went, 2010 actually. I went to visit him on a Thursday, and at that time, it, it, it was really just trying to get to know a family thinking this kid's not going to make it. You know, he was still unconscious. It was the day after he had fallen out the window. Uh, they, they weren't getting the responses they wanted. It was a frontal lobe uh, uh, injury to his brain. Uh, he had a bruised heart. I mean, it was, a, it was a dire situation, and it was traumatic and awful. And you know what? In that situation, you know how I pray as a Baptist pre preacher? God, heal this boy. Like, I trust you, but I'm praying that you'll heal this boy. And wouldn't we all pray that way, right? But do we pray that way not believing that God will, can and will heal people? You see, I believe that he can and will heal and we should ask, but we should also accept the answer. Whether the answer is, yeah, I'm going to heal this boy, or no, it's not according to my purposes. Well, in this case, I come back Sunday after church to visit with this family, again, thinking I have to get some information because I have likely a funeral to do. Um, and I go and visit with this family, and this little boy is sitting up in his bed and playing with action figures. The family, again, they have no real history in the church. In fact, they called me Father Dan. It's the only other time I've been called... It's the only time I called Father Dan. They said, Father Dan, look what God has done. Would you pray with us again? And I'm like, oh my goodness. The nurses, the doctor, every, they were all shocked and amazed. Not just that the boy was healed, but how quickly and how completely he was healed. But it doesn't always work its way out like that, right? So I get very cautious when I see the Benny Hins of the world who stand to, to have personal gain in this. You know, Benny Hinn became a very rich and wealthy man by supposedly healing people and having this gift of healing. I, I heard somebody else say this, and I believe it to be true. Friends, if Benny Hinn had the gift to walk by people and they just become healed instantaneously, he is worse than a reprobate for not living and camping out at St. Jude's Children's Hospital. If you have this gift, please go and use it on kids who are suffering and sick. If you have the gift of healing, please go visit those who are suffering and dying from cancer. And not 
and not, hear me here, and do not use it for personal gain and wealth and fame. That is not of God. That is not of God. Sometimes, again, I'm a never existedist. Some of this hyper-charismatic movement that's going on, I don't see in church history. I don't see in scripture. So this is my view. Again, uh, I, I think that this was a, 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 a gift that God can use. It was a known language. Um, and it was, it's for the edific, edification of the church, for the building up of the church. But again, my, my view on that specific thing, on tongues, is an open-handed view. What I would say is a more of a closed-handed view of how it should transpire, manifest itself, as the church comes and uh, gathers corporately, as we gather together. And I'm going to go back to our text here, and we're going to look at three priorities when we come together for worship. We should have three priorities as we come together to worship. Now, I, we said in the past couple weeks that there is a link between uh, chapters 12 through 14, and we're going to talk about that for just a few minutes here, how they link together. And then even when we conclude, we're going to go back to chapter 11, uh, where it talks about the, the taking the Lord's Supper together, and we're going we're gonna to end our service today with taking communion. By the way, free commercial, if you haven't already, if you, you might want to start working on this thing. We have about 10 minutes before we go there. Last, somebody put the, a little cup up here for me um, uh, uh, because of the first service I had to pull out my pocket knife. So they thought, Pastor, you shouldn't have a pocket knife on stage. Well, I couldn't open the cup if I didn't. So, so three priorities when we come together for worship. Priority number one, when we, everything we do should be Christocentric. There should be a gospel proclamation. What do I mean by that? It means Christ should be the center of everything that we do. Christ should be at the center of everything that we do. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking uh, in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. You know, underline those three words, Jesus is Lord. Because this is, a, this is something that should be central to every time we gather together. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Simply it means I am not. <laughs> Jesus is the Lord of my life. I am not the Lord of my life. And as we gather together, what we have in common, what we need to have in common, what needs to be in the center of our worship is the fact that Jesus is Lord and the gospel proclamation. What's the gospel proclamation? You know, we celebrate this in the Lord's Supper, the fact that God, seeing us in our sinful state, with our head, we are headed literally for hell, sends his son Jesus to come and to reconcile the lost, to give us an opportunity to walk in him, to, walk, to, to, to go from death unto life, to change our eternity. That Jesus came and he died for my sin. Man, I just wonder how many conflicts in the church would be completely ended if we all started with a mindset of the posture of Jesus died for my sin. When Jesus was on the cross, he knew my thoughts. When Jesus was on the cross, he knew what I was going to do. If all of us came in with that posture as we gather together, as we worship together, how would that change how we look at one another? Now, I've said this before, too, but imagine if every one of our sins that we've ever committed were written on the walls of this room. How often would we point at somebody else and say, you really messed up? Boy, I don't think we would, would we? 
our heads would probably be hanging in shame of everybody being able to see what's in our lives, what's in our hearts. But friends, Jesus died for that. And as we come together, one of the primary uh, uh, um, uh, priorities that we have as we come together is the gospel, that Jesus is at the center of what we do because we have failed miserably and God has reconciled us to himself through the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Christ must be the center of our worship gatherings. As such, the gospel must become a priority when we come together. The gospel not only informs all that we do, but it's the glue that binds us together along with the Holy Spirit of God. Christ has to be at the center. Our second priority when we come together for worship should be we should come together in love. Love for God and love for one another. Preached about this last week in 1 Corinthians 13, but look back to verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Well, what does that mean to come together and come together as a worship, a gathering, and love one another? Friends, we love others in worship gatherings by thinking of other people's edification. Thinking about how I can help with your growth. And then you're thinking in turn about how you can help with my growth. And we can love one another when we favor each other. We can love one another in worship gatherings when we realize it's not all about our own personal preferences. Can I, can I tell you something? Uh, I don't like burgundy chairs. I know that's dumb. I, I really don't care for burgundy chairs. They're very brightly colored burgundy. It's not my favorite color. I don't care for them. But can I tell you something? It doesn't stinking matter. The color of our chairs doesn't matter. What matters is who's sitting in them. And sometimes I have to say, you know what? I'll live with these ugly chairs. Because it's not what's important. My preferences shouldn't be what guide and dictate my attitude when I come and worship with you. I should love you. We should love one another. We love one another. We realize it's not about what we can do or even what we know. It's, it, you know, it's, it's how we love one another. How do we interact with each other? Do we favor one another over our, our, ourselves? And then the third priority as we gather together is this, and we're kind of coming back to chapter 14 here, and that's orderliness, that there should be an order in which we gather together and, and, and worship together. Listen to verses 26 through 33. What then, brothers... When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or, th- or at the most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to an- another sitting there... Let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and, be incur- and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, 
What does this mean? Well, there needs to be an order to our service. Imagine if we all just come together and everybody, just whenever they feel like it, would stand and just start sharing and talking. There would be no order there, and it wouldn't be good for the building up of the body. And that is one of the big keys, that when we come together, we come together for the building each other up. We come together in an orderly fashion. We come together in love for one another, and we come together proclaiming Christ, his death, and his resurrection, the gospel of Jesus at the center of all that we do and all that we say. It's really simple, actually. Everything we do together uh, should be edifying to the saints and glorifying to God. A key to understanding, I think, this whole portion of text is these simple words that Paul uses. Let all things be done for building up. Sometimes that means I have to self-sacrifice and say, you know, I don't need to be the star of the show. I just need to be quiet for a minute. Everything we do should be for the building up of one another. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. And uh, for any of you who have not received a cup, so this we at Berean, we, we serve a, a, what we call open communion, meaning it, you don't have to be a member here. If you are a, a believer, a follower of Jesus, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you're welcome to join us in the Lord's Supper. Um, if you did not get your little cup, would you just slip up your hand? We have some guys that will come. Get some folks over here. Anybody in the balcony need any? Just raise your hand. We got folks walking around with them. Yeah, over here. Also, seriously, start opening these things like immediately because if you're like me, it might take you 25 minutes to get the thing open. I'm really looking forward to a post-COVID communion when we don't have to use these little things. Not that I'm complaining, but I think I'm complaining. First Corinthians 11, as we kind of move backwards um, uh, another couple of chapters. The Apostle Paul dealing with the church and how they come together to take the Lord's Supper. And uh, one of the, if they would have only prioritized the things that we said to prioritize in a worship gathering, I don't think they would have received the rebuke that they received from Paul about how they took the Lord's Supper, how people came and they thought only of themselves. Man, Christ has to be the center of our gathering, but how much more so should be the center of our taking the Lord's Supper together? As we examine ourselves and, and ask God to reveal to us anything that we have in our lives that we need to deal with. This is one of those solemn times as the church where we have the opportunity to kind of self-reflect and say, God, is there something that I need to repent from? Can you show me a sin that I'm dealing with? Is there somebody who has offended me or maybe I have offended them and I need to have that conversation to reconcile with that other person? This is a great time to ask God for those things. And if you join me in prayer, we're going to do just that before we continue. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the diversity of gifts. God, thank you for the men and women who have labored hard to rightly interpret and understand and divide your word. God, we pray knowing that we probably don't get everything right all the time. We pray for mercy from you, from grace, for patience for understanding, for peace in our lives. And God, as we look to celebrate this Lord's Supper and we remember what it is you've done on that cross, that cross that should have been mine. It was my sins. It was my sins that someone needed to sacrifice and die for. It was my place. And God, as we come to this solemn time of remembering, 
And over the next moment or so, while we, while we sit quietly together, may your spirit speak to each one of us and let us know those areas that we need to grow in. Let us know those areas that maybe we have a sin that we need to deal with. Let us know and remind us of those, uh, those people that we need to reconcile with. So Lord, over the next moment, may your spirit move and, and lead us in all those ways. God, we love you and we praise you and we honor you as we look back realizing what you have done for us and for our sins and we look forward as we do this and we continue to celebrate the Lord's Supper until you return. We look forward to that return. It's in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 11, starting in 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, uh, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. God, we just marvel at your mercy and at your grace in our lives. God, we love you and we praise you. Help us to always remember, to always remember that you, are, you need to be at the center of all of our gathering, all of our worship, and all of our lives. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.